This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.16, where the water meets the sky, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I think the most unrealistic part of Gundam is how lax airport security is in the Universal Century. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and wishing that someone, anyone, could convince Amuro to be honest about his feelings. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 246 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Trevor M., CDY, who is actually a returning patron, welcome back, Peter B., Tim E., Salvaris, and Musad M. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash patreon. Another way to support the podcast is to buy us one of the items from our wish list. As you might imagine, there are a lot of reference books, magazines, and other research materials that we wish we had access to. Not to mention recording equipment, office supplies, and tea to keep our voices in tip-top shape. The link to the wishlist is at the bottom of our homepage, GundamPodcast.com. And now for this week's episode. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 15, Katz's Sortie, or Katsu no Shutsugeki. After the recap and our talkback, we have an interview with special guest and Mobile Suit Breakdown's resident clinical neuropsychology consultant, Dr. Shar of Dr. Charmander Gaming of no relation to Shar Aznaval. It's not even spelled the same way. That would be the sneakiest of all. Shar's next pseudonym is just Shar, but spelled differently. I love it. He's a master of disguise. How do we know he hasn't gone undercover as Dr. Shar of Dr. Charmander Gaming? But first, we have the Titans News Network to remind you what happened last week. Hello, and welcome aboard. I'm Lieutenant Tom Thompson. And I am Lieutenant Nina Ninastotter, and you know us as the most trusted voices in news. But today, we are here to tell you about the safety features on this Titan's Air Fleet Enticement Class Atmospheric Passenger Plane. As Earthnoids, your safety is very important to us, so please listen carefully. This is your captain speaking. Sorry, folks, but takeoff is going to be delayed a few minutes. We, uh, we have a military transport plane crossing in front of us for an emergency departure. While we are in flight, you must keep your seatbelt securely fastened at all times. If spurning the comforting embrace of Earth's gravity by flying through the air begins to cause you any existential distress, simply tighten your seatbelt until you feel sufficiently restrained. If you are traveling with small children or unruly teenagers whose passionate anger stands in stark contrast to your own post-war disaffection, 
like a needle held against your skin to prick you whenever you start to relax. Just make sure to fasten your own seatbelt before locking them down in exactly the same way. The Titans expect obedience to be prompt and visible, so make sure to keep your seatbelt fastened and visible at all times. To assist your flight crew in identifying any undesirable persons attempting to infiltrate this plane, this is a no-sunglasses flight, and sleeves are required at all times. In addition, pursuant to Federation Directive 86-4 Subcategory K, sunglasses are totally uncool. Before the doors are closed, Federation Forces plainclothes agents from the Division of Airport Surveillance may board the plane at any time to arrest undocumented space noids or AUG sympathizers. For your convenience, we have installed a dedicated button on your armrest that you can use to alert the plane's crew if you suspect another passenger. It's the one marked with a boot. Remember, if you suspect someone, anonymously report someone. In the increasingly likely event of an attack on the aircraft while in flight, normal suits can be found under your seat, and your seat cushion doubles as a flak jacket. In the event of a mid-air collision, passengers in first class will be provided with Homo Avis gliders, allowing you to return safely and comfortably to the Earth below. If you're seated in business class, you will find a parachute in the compartment next to your seat. If you're in economy class, we encourage you to carefully review the section in your ticket purchase contract titled limited liability. If you are carrying any baggage with you, we invite you now to stow it underneath the seat in front of you or in the overhead compartment. Remember, no matter what kind of baggage you're carrying, out of sight and out of mind is the Titan's approved way of dealing with it. Just cram it all somewhere deep and dark and shut the lid on it. Maybe for a few hours, maybe forever. That's what I do. Me too. Ah, that military transport appears to have taken off without a runway, so, uh, we are back on schedule. Thanks for your patience. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy your flight to Japan. And now the recap for Katz's sortie. Buran Blutark returns to his ship, demanding that the crew repair the Ashimar as quickly as possible. Rosamia joins him, putting a hand on his arm. Major, please let me join your team. Grabbing him by the shoulder, she continues. I want to defeat those people no matter what it takes. As she finishes speaking, she suddenly huddles against the Major's chest. I can't stand it, she murmurs. He seems taken aback. Can't stand what? That Ayug want to destroy the people of Earth by dropping colonies on them. Staring into space and with a quavering voice, she sighs, the sight of a colony dropping. It's as if the sky were falling. Blutark brushes a strand of hair from her face before abruptly shoving her aside. After all, Ayuk hate the thought of polluting the Earth. They wouldn't drop more colonies on it. Rosamia grabs at him again when he walks away. I still dream of it every night. I still dream of the sky falling. He stops. I understand, Ensign. Do as you wish. Thank you, Major. He finally gets away from her, but looks back to see her staring at her hands, shaking, but with a smile on her face. On the Audumla, Hayato and Amuro catch up. Amuro tells Hayato about Fra and the kids on their way to Japan, and asks if it was Hayato's idea for them to visit him. Not only was it Hayato's idea, he also suspected that Amuro would bring cats to Karaba. 
Katz desperately wanted to get away from life on Earth, but Fra hated the idea. Of course, no mother wants to send her child to war, Amuro tells him. Sure, Hayato responds, but children will do what they want, regardless of their parents' wishes. They are interrupted by a call from Quattro. Is that Shar? Amuro asks. It's Lieutenant Quattro now. He'll always be Shar Aznable to me. <laughs> Patting him on the arm, Hayato says, okay, but don't be such a stickler about it. Mobile suits line the hangar, being repaired and recalibrated after the last battle. Katz peeks into the cockpit of the Mark II. He can't see Camille working behind the pilot seat and steps inside, marveling at the 360-degree view screens. When he reaches for the controls, he hears a voice shout, Hands off! The Mark II made quite an impression on Katz in the last battle, and he was surprised, in the best way, to learn that Camille, almost as young as Katz himself, was the pilot. Camille is getting on with his work when Quattro stops by to ask Camille to look after Katz. When Camille goes back into the Mark II's cockpit, Katz has seated himself in the pilot's seat. They talk a bit about Katz's experience with the old mobile suits at Kennedy, and Camille asks how well Katz knows Amuro. I was with him on the white base during the One Year War. He was an idol to us, but he's different lately. He doesn't have the same spirit. When Hayato and Quattro finish discussing plans for their arrival in Hickory, Quattro walks over to where Amuro is sitting alone on a bench. That was impressive, crashing a lumbering and clumsy freighter into a mobile suit. Amuro cuts directly to the point. Why did you return to the Earth's sphere? I came to laugh at you. That's what you want to hear, isn't it? I didn't choose to end up like this. I'm sure you understand that. And yet, you don't really want sympathy. Amuro looks surprised, but doesn't deny it. You didn't answer my question. Why did you return to the Earth's sphere? Quattro looks away. Lala's spirit is still drifting in the Earth's sphere. I couldn't sense her past Mars. They stand in silence for a moment, thinking of the young woman who meant so much to them both, before Shar continues. By isolating yourself, you will only help the Federation government and the Titans. A bird in a cage is a pet, a toy for someone else's enjoyment. Amuro stalks off, hands in his pockets, thinking this over. Camille runs up to hand him a lunchbox. I've been hoping for a chance to meet you. The moment he hears this, Amuro turns away with a grimace and starts to walk away. Camille follows, but instead of the praise Amuro was expecting, Camille tells him about all of the times people have compared him to Amuro and how frustrating that has been. How can I live up to their expectations? What has Katz been saying about me, Amuro replies. This is the wrong thing to say. Ask him yourself, Camille retorts before running away down the hall. The silhouette of a biplane appears against the setting sun. It is one of their own, Beltorchka Irma from Hickory Base. Hayato sends Katz to wake Amuro, and once he arrives in Amuro's room, he doesn't stop talking for a second. The biplane is so cool, and Beltorchka is an amazing person, and what happened to you yesterday? Aren't you interested in the Gundam? Amuro grabs his clothes and ducks into the cabin's bathroom, but Katz just stands outside while continuing to talk. Are you bothered that they made the Mark II? Shut up already! Leave me alone! Katz finally leaves, but standing in the shower, Amuro thinks to himself that it's spiteful of Shar and Hayato to ignore him and give the Gundam to such a young pilot. He finally joins Hayato, Katz, and Camille to hear Beltorchka's report from Hickory. Angry at being told off earlier, Katz leaves the moment that Amuro arrives. Beltorchka is surprised. 
Amuro is a new type, but looks like a normal person. She's always imagined Amuro Rei as more warlike, but she's relieved to sense that he isn't unconcerned about killing people. Someone who will use the Eiyugankaraba cause to justify anything. Walking down the hall, Quattro overhears her and stops short. When she finishes, he continues on his way, and even a brief glimpse of him crossing the doorway is enough for Beltorchka to sense that he is the sort of person who can't live without war. Camille points out that as part of Karaba, she can't be totally against war. She confirms that she isn't, but still, there doesn't seem to be anything peaceful about Quattro. Surprisingly, it is Amuro who sticks up for him. Quattro isn't what he seems, and inside is a kind person. He leaves abruptly, with Beltorchka wondering what it is she did wrong. It isn't long before the Sidori catches up to them. Rosamia takes off immediately, her earlier fear replaced by fierce confidence. Ayug and Karaba forces, taken by surprise, rush to their stations, and Katz sneaks into the Mark II. With only a moment's hesitation, he takes the controls and gets onto a Dodai. Camille is horrified by the thought of Katz going straight into battle, but Quattro orders the hatch opened, allowing Katz to take off. Quattro then orders Camille into the Rick Diaz, and the two of them take off after Katz. Amuro, Hayato, and Beltorchka learn what's happened, but when Amuro rushes to a Nemo, Hayato stops him. You haven't touched a mobile suit in seven years. At least Katz has had training. But I used to be a Gundam pilot. Beltorchka and Amuro suddenly sense each other's feelings. Beltorchka's disappointment that Amuro is just one more person who fights. Amuro's shock and his fear of getting into a mobile suit again. Amuro shakes and pounds his fist into the wall in frustration. And Beltorchka thinks to herself that his fear of fighting is just like her own fear of the sky falling. Outside, the fight has begun, and Katz is immediately overwhelmed. He is slow, and the unfamiliar controls of the Mark II make him even slower. He almost crashes into the sea and struggles to regain control of the Dodai, leaving Rosamia to wonder if this can possibly be the same pilot she fought before. Just when Katz has gotten the Mark II on its feet, like a plant buzzes by, knocking it into the sea. When Camille arrives to help Katz up, Katz insists that he can still fight, but Camille is stern. All Katz has been able to do so far is cause trouble. He realizes that Camille is right, and is ready to go back to the Audumla when he senses something behind Camille. With perfect timing, Katz fires and blasts the leg off the Gaplant as it comes up over the rocks. The Hyakushiki blasts off the other leg before the Rick Diaz shoots it once more. With the Gaplant mostly destroyed, Rosamia is forced to eject. Blutark, watching from the Sidori, considers Rosamia's over-aggressiveness the reason for her defeat, and wonders if cyber new types are actually any use. Back on the Audumla, Hayato punches Katz, knocking him to the ground. You're unbelievable. The selfish actions of one person can wipe out a force. For a moment, Amuro watches from a distance before walking away. Quattro wonders what is wrong with Amuro to prevent him from fighting. Doesn't he feel the same excitement in his blood that he did back then? I didn't notice this until we were already a couple of episodes into the Earth part. There's a dramatic shift in the gender makeup of our main cast when Camille and Quattro come to Earth, because we leave behind Lila, Rekua, and Emma, 
the major female characters from the space arc. And then we don't have any women on Earth except for Rekua, who spends most of that time in a jail cell and returns to space as quickly as possible. And then we had Fra, very briefly. We even left Fa in space, now that I think of it. That's true. How could I do what the show does and forget about Fa? How could you? Just like Camille. <laughs> oh. I like to think of Camille handing a lunchbox to somebody who didn't really want it as an homage to Fa. As a way to start a conversation that that person also doesn't want to have. <laughs> that also ends with you running away. I knew I had deja vu. <laughs> so whether that was intentional or coincidental, it's very interesting that that happened. And now in the last two episodes, the show has started introducing some new major female characters to bring us a little closer to the gender parody that we enjoyed when we were in space. You say major, though, and I'm not certain. You know, anytime they introduce a new character, that character could be a Shalia Bull. True. Yeah, Rosamia makes it through two episodes before her Gaplant gets destroyed and she's ejector seating out of there. For any of you who haven't watched First Gundam, uh, Shalia Bull seems like he's going to be really important. He's a new type. He gets an episode named after him. Yeah, uh, and he gets killed in the same episode in which he is introduced. Pour one out for Shalia Bull. But the thing that strikes me the most in this episode about the women we see introduced, is that I feel as if we're being set up to potentially compare them. This is an episode all about comparing similarly situated characters, so it's no surprise that you would feel that way. Both of us, after watching this one, had essentially set up our notes to compare Rosami and Beltorchka, Amro and Shar, and Camille and Katz. There's some Hayato comparison too, but all of the people that Hayato is being compared to aren't present. The reason that I say that I think we're meant to be comparing these two women basically comes down to both of them bringing up their personal trauma, which is that they were there when the colony drop happened. Now remember, kids, <laughs> <laughs> most of the information about the colony drop is spoiler territory. The only thing I, as someone who has not seen any of the rest of the series, knows right now is that it happened. That someone associated with space noids dropped a colony, and we know that both Beltorchka and Rosamia witnessed it, and they talk about it as the sky falling. But there, the similarities between them seem to end. <laughs> Do they? Both of them have no concept of personal space, for one thing. That's true, but it, uh, it has a very different feeling. So at some point in the future, I will do a little more research about this. We've talked about it a bit in the past, but there's this concept called insecure attachment. When a child grows up in a situation where they don't feel safe and connected to their caregiver, they develop these coping mechanisms that end up harming their adult relationships. And so they're all different types. You know, in one, you're sort of aggressive and avoidant. You're pushing people away. Like, I don't need people. I'm fine because I don't need anyone. In one, you're attempting, like, inappropriate levels of closeness and intimacy with people to keep them close to you uh, and constantly feel insecure about whether or not people love you and care about you. And even before terminology like insecure attachment was well known, these things were common enough and had worked their way into the popular imagination with pretty derogatory labels like daddy issues or mommy issues. Mm -hmm. 
When you see Rosamia touch Blutark, when she grabs his arm, when she takes him by the shoulders, when she huddles against him, she's not trying to entice him. This isn't sexual. She's not trying to attract him. She is very childlike. She is flashing back, possibly, to these horrible moments, especially in that moment when she zones out and she's like looking out into space and her eyes seem unfocused. She's remembering this horrible, scarring event in her life, and she's frightened. And she both feels like she's dependent on Blutark, and so some of these gestures are a way to be like, oh, you're going to look after me, right? Like, I need you, therefore I need you to care about me. <laughs> They're the gestures of a supplicant. They're about throwing yourself on the mercy of a more powerful person, because that's all you can do. And it's, like, highly inappropriate, <laughs> right? And we recognize that. And he recognizes that. And his responses vary from confusion to irritation. You know, he grabs her hand and removes it from himself. <laughs> but when she huddles against him, he doesn't, like, shove her away. Although later he does kind of, like, push her out of the way when he brushes past her. And he associates her inappropriate behavior with being a cyber new type. He thinks this is cyber new type stuff. Because when she first goes up to him and is like, please let me join your unit, we haven't heard her say that before, but he clearly has because he has this internal monologue of, oh, is this a thing that cyber new types do? They just repeat themselves a bunch. And all of this, this whole scene suggests a certain degree of mental and emotional instability for Rosamia. Respect for Buran Blutark not taking advantage of this situation. He doesn't seem to have any interest of that kind in her. Nope. But he also doesn't do what certain other important blonde Gundam characters have done in the past and use her trauma, her moment of weakness, her fragility as a way to get control of her. I did wonder at some point in the episode whether his sort of like a vacillating between warmth and coldness was an effort to sort of manipulate her, <laughs> keep her on her toes, if you will. Um, it's like a classic abusive relationship tactic to mm. blow hot and cold. Funny, I was going to say, I think a lot of characters in this episode are being kept off balance throughout the whole episode. But I didn't get the feeling that he was intentionally doing that to her. No, I don't think, to the extent that it was happening, I don't think that it was intentional. Which does invite comparisons to Quattro and Char, both of whom have played the role of the older, more experienced soldier mentoring the unstable psychic child. So then we contrast this with Beltorchka, who, like, yes, she gets all up in Amaro's personal space and smells him, <laughs> which someone should call HR. Uh, but it feels like an aggressive act. She does it to put him off, I think. She does it to put him off balance. Oh, the famous Amaro. She, like, wants to stick one <laughs> to this famous guy, <laughs> as opposed to Rosamia's, which is, like, desperation and fear and vulnerability. I'm with you on that. I yeah, Be Beltorchkis feels aggressive. She, like, leans right in and takes a big sniff and then grins at him. <laughs> But we know Beltorchka is also traumatized for all that she does not phrase it that way. And we know this because she shares a new type moment with Amro. A particularly weird one, too. Where they sort of exchange feelings back and forth, it seems. 
he has just told her that he used to be a pilot and he's sort of like angry at being relegated <laughs> to just protecting the Audumla instead of going out in a mobile suit. And her her feeling is actually one of disappointment. She had been pleased that he was not one of these like warlike, hyper-aggressive fighters. And now he's sort of acting like he is and she's disappointed. But then when he's afraid to go out, when the trauma of his time in the war catches up to him and he's trembling and pounding on the wall because he can't get back in the mobile suit, she seems disgusted by him. I didn't get that impression at all. I got the impression of shock and surprise. It's like he senses her disappointment and looks startled. He seems surprised. Because he's used to thinking that everybody always wants him to get in the Gundam. Like, that's what they want from him. And so for her to be disappointed that that's what he wants to do is shocking. And then when he becomes afraid, she thinks in this, like, new type moment that they're having, he's afraid of fighting the way I'm afraid of the sky falling. But he recoils away from that thought because... He's so obsessed with what everybody else thinks of him and with trying to live up to their expectations that here, where it seems like whatever he does surprises and disappoints Beltorchka, he can't handle it either way. And it just makes it worse. It becomes like a feedback loop for him. But then she does go and get in the defense turret. Yeah, it's possible that between her and Rosamia, we're also supposed to see the not warlike and the warlike right? That Mm -hmm. same contrast between the two. Because when Rosamia is in fight mode, it's a whole different ballgame. She's confident. She puts on what I think of as the villainous voice, very like smooth and kind of low and with like a creepy chuckle behind all of it. And those narrow flashing eyes. And as Camille points out to her, because he says, well, you are also in Karaba. (laughs) Clearly, you're not completely anti-war. But she makes the distinction between you know, a person who uses the sort of like philosophical conflicts to excuse all kinds of behavior versus the people who recognize the violence as a like sad but necessary thing and are going to try to minimize the amount of violence and the amount of death involved. Mm -hmm. Tom has previously brought up comparing uh, pilots to their mobile suits. And with Rosamia, we have a surprisingly delicate gaplant. I I guess we haven't ever really seen it take a direct hit before, but we saw the Ashimar take multiple direct hits and its shields kept it from taking any damage unless you got it at just the right spot at just the right moment. I guess typically the Kaplan has been too fast and too sort of agile for them to be able to land those kind of hits. But in this one, she takes three and it's down for the count. It explodes. I think it was four all told, but yeah. They, they do bring her down. Which perhaps speaks to the fragility of Rosamia. Indeed. And then Beltorchka. <laughs> In her biplane. What was it you said to me about Beltorchka? Beltorchka is a complete bait and switch. Over the past 10 episodes or so, we have had a almost uninterrupted stream of first Gundam characters making their triumphant returns. Hayato and Kai and Amuro, Frabo, the orphans, Katz is a major character now, Bright's back on the Argama. And we've even learned, to our great surprise, that Quattro Bagina may actually be Shar Aznable. <laughs> Maybe. So a reasonable viewer at this point, seeing a pilot flying a plane in a pink flight suit who's blonde and blue-eyed, 
Such a reasonable viewer might look at this and say, It's Sela! Sela's back! And it's not Sela! It's Beltorchka. Womp womp. <laughs> and Beltorchka is flying a biplane. However, we learned from Camille, it is not a historic plane like the uh, various ships and mobile suits of Kennedy. It is a nice reproduction. <laughs> it's not Sela, it's a Sela replica. Yep. Maybe here to do the things that Sela would do if she were here. Yep, yep, yep. Since we're talking about Beltorchka's visual design, I want to revisit Rosamia's visual design. Nina described Rosamia as a glamour puss. With the long, wavy hair, the full makeup at all times. And then in this episode, I noticed for the first time that her flight suit, her actual normal suit for piloting her mobile suit, includes big old heels. I think some of the earlier women's flight suits may have as well. I'm not sure that that is unique to her, but they did look pretty tall. Yeah, real tall. And then there's a close-up on her hands at one point because she's doing the sort of traumatized person in a movie, like, staring at her own hands. And you can tell from her gloves because they're so tight, she has really long fingernails, too. Like, long, perfectly manicured fingernails. I saw that, too. Rosamia is hyper-feminine in a way that actually makes me think of Quattro and how Quattro feels very hyper-masculinized. He's got his sleeves ripped off so you can see his bulging muscles. And he's tall, and he's broad-chested, and he's got the very 80s masculine mullet. He's got the sunglasses, and he has the completely blunted affect. And almost never expresses emotion. Both of them fit into these very classic, stereotypical pigeonholes of what it means to be a feminine person and a masculine person. And viewed from that perspective, it makes her interaction with Blutark feel a little bit patronizing, especially after she confesses that she's afraid of the colony falling, and he says something like, don't you know that Ayug's beliefs are incompatible with doing that? Very well, now that I've given you some facts, your feelings must be completely resolved. Time to continue with my business. And then at the end of the episode, Blutark just sort of writes her off in a little captain's log kind of soliloquy. He says, oh, her overaggression caused her to fail. Will cyber new types ever be useful? I find it very interesting that he attributes everything about her to her being a cyber new type. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no sense of, of acknowledging the whole person, <laughs> so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, which I imagine is an experience that a lot of minorities have or people with disabilities have where like everything about you gets attributed to your difference everything gets attributed to the aspect of you that is seen as different from what's typical mm -hmm. and it's like well i'm i'm also a person with life experiences and a personality and likes and interests and character you know some of which is affected and shaped by that one characteristic but it doesn't define everything about who i am and odd that he ascribes her fate entirely to her excess of aggression and not to the fact that he didn't send any backup units. Yeah, she was fighting three against one. Although she also has some people with her, you know. She had the authority to bring people with her when she first launched and she chose not to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but after Blutarch accepts her into his command at the beginning, like that's the whole point of her scene with him there. Feel like it's on him to prevent her from going out unsupported or else support her when she goes out. 
you know, commanders owe their subordinates certain things as well. Those responsibilities don't just flow one way, no matter what many of the people in the Zeta Gundam universe might seem to think. Here we talk about Amuro wanting to live up to people's expectations or resenting those expectations or avoiding them. I think a big part of the reason he didn't get out of his sort of captivity earlier is because that captivity gave him an excuse not to fight and he really doesn't want to. <laughs> he is very afraid. He was traumatized by the war. And even during the war, he didn't want to fight for the most part. And so if Beltorchka is feeling what he's feeling, if she's not just aware that he's afraid by observing him, but is actually feeling his fear, and she says that that's how she feels about the colony drop. She is also carrying some trauma then. Like, I think that the fact that they're in complete empathy in this moment, and she makes that comparison, it tells us that even if her outward behavior is not as obviously affected by that as Rosamia's is, it's still very much part of her and part of her experience. I think that we are invited to compare Cats with Camille by the scene in which the two of them are literally connected by a cable that they're both holding. Cats just seems so childlike. And I don't mean that in, as an insult, but so many things about Cats's behavior to me still have that, that flavor of being very young and naive about a lot of things. Whereas... If Camille ever had that, he's lost it by now, <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. And they kind of edge close to this a little bit in that first discussion they share in the mobile suit cockpit. Right. When they're talking about fathers. Well, we have first Kat's acting like a little bit of a fanboy. Like, oh, I was so impressed with your mobile suit piloting and so excited when I found out it was somebody who's just a little bit older than me, but also cocky, right? Like, oh, I've been in lots of mobile suits because <laughs> my dad worked at the museum. And it's very odd for a moment to consider that the two both have wartime experience. <laughs> Katz, in fact, has yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. But Katz was not expected to fight. Really? I mean, he did some, and there were some points when they were like, all right, kids, here's some guns. <laughs> like, we're we're in the big Xeon base, and uh, here you go. There was a little a bit of that, but it wasn't like the, you know, get in the mobile suit, Camille. Um, and Katz felt, I don't want to say safe, because it's not quite the right word, but he felt cared for in a way that Camille clearly has not felt cared for in a very long time, maybe ever. Katz, at least from the time that he got picked up by Frabo, had a loving, devoted caregiver with whom he could form a secure bond of attachment. And he's talking about parents with Camille. And he's like, oh, Hayato is my foster dad. Camille's like, it's still nice to have a dad. <laughs> Better a foster dad than no dad. Well, C Camille is the one who brings it up. He asks Katz, you know, your dad seems really young to have you. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's because he's my foster dad, which uh, there are probably other terms. I noticed he says like giri for foster. Giri means like obligation. <laughs> um, I know it in the context of like Valentine's Day candy <laughs> and <laughs> giving like honmei or real feelings chocolates or giri choco, obligation chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I see this again later on when we have, you know, uh, Katz meets Viltorchka and she calls him like a nice boy <laughs> or a nice kid and he bristles at being called a kid. But she smiles at him and he gets over it immediately. Amaro meeting Matilda. Yep. And he gets sent off to fetch Amaro. And everything about this scene made me think of like a kid pestering an adult. He doesn't stop. It's talking a mile a minute while Amaro's trying to get ready. <laughs> Amaro's grabbing some clothes, going into the bathroom. Cats just won't stop talking to him. We even like hear a toilet flush and hear <laughs> the shower turn on and cats talking, talking, talking until Amaro is finally like, leave me alone. Fine. And like runs away <laughs> and then leaves the meeting the moment Amaro arrives. Everybody, everybody passionately running away from things in this episode. And by everybody, I mostly mean Camille and Katz, because that is how Camille leaves his discussion with Amaro, too, a little bit earlier in the episode. But to me, it felt like Camille's approach of Amaro, it starts out feeling like it's going to be a fanboy thing and then it turns out it's not yeah uh and you can tell amuro is worried that that's what it's going to be and then totally misses the point but we'll talk about that when we talk about amuro but it uh camille's approach feels almost confrontational it's like everyone's always comparing me to you and it's awful <laughs> it's such a pain what should i do about it <laughs> How am I supposed to live up to their expectations and not disappoint them? How am I supposed to satisfy all of these people who are comparing me to you? And Amaro's just like, kid, let me tell you something about how much it sucks to be compared to me. Well, They've been comparing <laughs> me to me for seven years. And let me tell you, it sucks. I don't know how to live up to it either. I mean, we'll come back to this again. Amaro also, again, makes it about himself. Like you said, I don't know how to live up to it either. And it's like, what did cats say to you about me? <laughs> Camille's like, man, I'm here for some advice about my situation. I don't care what Kat <laughs> has to say about you. Like, why are you making this about you? See, I took it a little bit differently when Camille sort of flips out and bolts. Because it felt like the reaction was a little bit more extreme than was warranted if it were just Camille being kind of angry at Amaro for making it about him. But but that's like Camille's reactions all the time. A little well, that's extreme. The thing. That's the thing. This is very, very much like when Camille was going to talk to Requa, ran into her with Quattro and was like, eh, I don't want to talk to her anyway, and runs off to Emma mm -hmm. and then runs away from Emma when Requa shows up. Because I think what Camille is really afraid of here is Camille is afraid of being replaced. Just like Amaro was. Yep. And Katz is younger also a new type, was on the white base, already knows Amaro. Is the son of the director of Caraba. <laughs> the first scene they share together is Katz getting into the Mark II and trying to pilot it. And Camille being like, no, stop it. Mine. This is my expression of my power. And this goes back to Camille and his dad. Like we talked about in 2.6, when Camille is fighting with his dad, his dad is talking about making a superior replacement for the Mark II. But what he's really talking about is replacing the son that he doesn't like. And I think that goes to that same feeling of insecure attachment, that Camille doesn't feel safe. He doesn't feel like his position with all of these people is ever secure. We also have to address that scene at the end when Hayato corrects Katz for stealing the Mark II. 
And Camille and Katz, after Katz has stolen the Mark II, have this moment on the water where Camille is like trying to explain to Katz what he's done wrong. Mm -hmm. In a way, it feels like Camille is trying to share the benefits of his brief and very painful education Mm -hmm. in like military discipline and how to please the adults around you. I saw somewhat less of that and more a sense that now that Camille has been doing this for a while, he understands a little bit why people were maybe angry at him for going off half-cocked. Because he tells Katz, all your coming out here did was make trouble for everyone. You were no help whatsoever (laughs) in this fight. And if you wreck the Mark II, then what? Katz does save Camille's bacon, which is pretty cool. But he shouldn't have been out there in the first place. And And Camille was only in danger and distracted because he was talking to Katz. Well, and and getting him up. Katz was stunned from that last time being knocked down. Katz really spent that whole battle off balance as a nice little microcosm for the entire rest of the episode. Hayato hitting Katz reminded me of Bright and Ryu Hmm. and the times that they hit people on the white base. I also wondered if Hayato is perhaps being tougher on Katz than he would be on anyone else. I think he absolutely is. Because Katz is is his son. Yeah. Hayato has been putting a lot of thought and energy into trying to educate Katz and get Katz ready for the war. Hayato has known that this has been coming, and he's known that there was no way Katz was going to stay out of it. Mm -hmm. Frabo didn't want Katz to go, but Hayato knew that wasn't going to be an option. So it's about trying to make sure that Katz is prepared, trying to make sure the cats doesn't get himself killed. Well, and doesn't endanger anyone else. Like, after everything that they've all been through, (laughs) and the fact that they survived somehow, all working together, Mm -hmm. I imagine that this is one of those moments that I'm sure all parents have, where your kid does something that you really would have hoped they knew not to do, that that you had taught them in such a way that they wouldn't do this bad thing, but they've done it anyway. <laughs> and so he, he probably feels to a certain extent like a like he's failed in his parenting, that cats would do something so reckless and so dangerous to everyone else, something that puts all of these other people in danger, not just that it was reckless, but that it was selfish. He particularly calls out cats for talking about new type stuff. Don't take one coincidence and assume that you're Amaro. Well, and act as if it is something that you have trained and developed. Yeah. When we compare Hayato to Franklin, Hayato definitely comes out looking a lot better. This is clearly a very different kind of correction, well, a very when, different kind of violence. When Franklin hits Camille, he's angry at being confronted with his own wrongdoings <laughs> as opposed to... Oh, I really messed up as dad, and you made this mistake, and I have to make sure you never make it again. In both cases, it is coming from a place of personal failure. Yeah. But the purpose of it is different, and that does make a difference. Still, I thought it was excessive. Well, he hits him twice. He hits him real hard the first time. Mm-hmm. There's blood flying out of Katz's mouth when Hayato well, punches him. Katz gets knocked to the ground. And Camille even tries to intervene. Although not with a classic Camille raging interjection, but he does intervene. This scene is constructed very similarly to the previous episode when Camille comes back in after sortieing without orders. And Camille says, I felt myself pulled by that enemy mobile suit. Right. And in that case, Hayato didn't hit him. 
He almost did. And then he was tempted a second time, so that matches up with the two strikes in this scene, especially because that second one comes right after Katz says, but I was able to see and shoot an invisible enemy. And then Camille interjects himself into the confrontation to back Katz up and diffuse the tension in just the same way that Quattro did in the prior episode. Horrible thought that is maybe relevant. The reason he doesn't hit Camille that first time is he says, you know, I don't think hitting you is going to fix your personality. It's entirely possible that in the time he's been raising cats, he's quote unquote had to. He has felt the need to hit cats before and he knows that it works. Cats doesn't seem shocked. No, he doesn't. He does not seem surprised that this is happening. Well, and his uh -huh. immediate reaction is to be like, I'm sorry, dad. Yeah. He is very conciliatory right away. To some degree, that may have been what Camille was going for when Camille tells Katz off the first time. Because at first, Katz tries to argue with him. I can still fight. And Camille's like, what are you talking about? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, no. And after he explains, Katz does seem to understand more. Like, oh, I see now why this is so bad, what I just <laughs> did. And so he was more prepared to hear it again and to accept that criticism rather than try to defend his behavior or get angry. See, now I'm imagining an off-screen scene between Katz and Camille on the way back to the Aldumla, where Camille is like, all right, listen, you're going to get hit. At this point, that's inevitable. But they'll stop hitting you once you apologize. Apologize and then shut your mouth. Doesn't matter how you feel about it. That's not going to affect how much they hit you. Yeah, that would not surprise me in the least. That's canon now, guys. <laughs> that happened. Big Brother Camille laid down some advice. The reason I was a little bit taken aback when you suggested comparing Hayato to Bright or Ryu on the white base is not that those comparisons shouldn't be made, but Hayato really doesn't come out looking very good when you make those comparisons. Because I'm going to make a note here. This is Zeta Gundam episode 15, Katsu no Shutsugeki. First Gundam episode 16 was Seira Shutsugeki. When Seira stole the Gundam, went out, and needed to be rescued. And she got three days in the brig. And she didn't even serve all of them because she got let out early during the prison break. Which is worse, getting punched twice or three days in the brig? In isolation, I mean... To reiterate, I'm not saying that corporal punishment is good, <laughs> but I'm saying if somebody gave you the choice between being hit twice and being put in effectively solitary for three days, you might choose to get hit instead. Maybe. It also might be less shameful. I'm not sure, sort of within the society of Karaba, whether this is the case, but I can imagine scenarios in which the like, all right, well, you took your punishment and now you're done is preferable to, oh, you're stuck in the brig for three days where you're no use to anyone and you're basically just a freeloader and everybody knows that that's where you are. Uh, I don't know. The brig has the imprimatur of command and authority and the rules. This just felt like Hayato got angry and punched his son. I do think that's true. It's not three lashes before the mast. That's true. If it were formalized punishment, everybody would be there to see it, because that's the point of formalized punishment like that. I mean, I don't think there's a way for Hayato to come out of this scenario looking good. I think Hayato lost his temper.
What's the first thing we learn about Aunt Moreau in this episode? He doesn't have the ginkiness he used to have. Katz has been listening to too many legends about Amuro, because Amuro was not particularly Genki, and even in the best of days on the white base. No, he was not. And I'm positive that Katz's memory of that time is heavily colored by stories both in the popular imagination and that his parents tell. The first thing I felt like I learned about Amuro was that he is so passive aggressive. <laughs> He's in the shower washing his hair, getting upset about how spiteful it is for Hayato and Shar to ignore him and give the Mark II <laughs> to a younger pilot. He has not expressed a desire to pilot anything until this episode. In fact, he seems to express the exact opposite. And yet, you know, what does he want? He wants like begging and pleading. Please, Amuro, we need you to pilot the Mark II. <laughs> He wants what he wanted when he abandoned the white base the first time around. He wants everybody to need him and say so all the time, but not have any expectations. Right, because he's already received a few sort of like scoldings and brow beatings, but apparently that's not doing it for him. And he's already got the young guys who want him to pilot, but he wants his peers. Yeah, I think he, he wants to be like begged to get back in the pilot seat. <laughs> Even before that, going back to that theme of self-centeredness for Amuro, in that conversation with Hayato, where they're talking about cats and how it turns out that sending Frabo and the kids to stay with Amuro was all part of Hayato's master plan to get Amuro back in the game. And cats into and the cats. game in the first place. Hayato says he was hoping that Amuro would help train cats for the war. And Amuro's like, oh, well, don't you really mean you were hoping to use cats to retrain me? Isn't it really all about Amuro? There's actually a lot of commonality between Amuro and Char. They are both very self-centered and make everything about them. <laughs> Quattro being like, so have you heard of Char Aznable? <laughs> the only way I know to give you advice about this horrific situation is to make it about me. <laughs> Similarly, I think... Both Amuro and Quattro are very dishonest about their emotions. Amuro, I think, has some conflicting feelings, but, like, if he wants to pilot the Mark II so bad, I'm pretty positive that if he went <laughs> to Hayato and said, I want to pilot the Mark II, Hayato would say, okay, well, you need to get back into sort of piloting shape on one of the other mobile suits, but then, of course, you know, he has a ton of experience. I don't see him denying Amuro that. <laughs> even if Camille has been in the Mark II for a while now. But he won't ask. He wants to be asked. But then, if anybody around him were really respecting his feelings sort of as spoken and as displayed, they would never ask him. <laughs> Which is the case. <laughs> right. And then Quattro is never clear with anyone <laughs> about what he wants or what he's trying to achieve. I think we can tell from this episode that at least one of the things that Quattro wants is for Amuro to get back in the mobile suit. But he completely misunderstands some of their shared history. Because Quattro feels alive when he pilots. He talks about, like, a feeling in his blood. I'm not sure that Amuro has ever felt that. And if he has, it's been so long and his memories have become so dark and frightening for him that he certainly doesn't anymore. And so... For Quattro, it's like, how could you not? 
get in the Gundam and fight. How could you not become a pilot again? It's the only thing that makes you feel alive. And for Amuro, it's like, how could you? It's the, the most terrifying, upsetting thing that could possibly happen. Right. Last episode at the end, it felt like a gold-tinged reunion between two long-separated lovers. And now we find the crux of the conflict that has divided them. Shar is trying to recapture a feeling that he had during the war with Amuro, something that he felt between the two of them when he was piloting, and Amuro was his great rival, his great enemy on the other side. And the problem with that is that that is a feeling Amuro didn't feel. It's a feeling that only existed on one side, and all of Shar's efforts to recreate it are therefore doomed to failure. I won't say that Amuro didn't feel it at all, because Amuro did at points have a feeling that verged on obsession with wanting to fight the Red Comet. And he did have that feeling of admiration for Shar, for Shar's incredible skill. But it wasn't fun <laughs> for Amuro, and I think it was kind of fun for Shar. I think it kind of completed Shar. It gave him additional purpose, additional meaning. I realized, I think, why the fandom loves Shar so much, or seems to, and tends to give, I think, Amuro short shrift. Shar gives the appearance of being very sure of himself and very comfortable with who he is. And I think that's a very appealing quality, whether or not it's real or a mask. Mm -hmm. Amuro is constantly uncertain. He is full of doubt all the time, which I happen to think is very wise. <laughs> How much can you really be sure of in this world anyway? <laughs> and I think that's in many ways a sign of a, a thoughtful person, but perhaps one who is overly introspective and overly in their head. And it's not super appealing. You spend time with Full of Doubts Amuro, and you don't really want to spend more time with Full of Doubts Amuro. It's like, okay, dude, make some decisions. <laughs> Buck up there. In their first conversation... Quattro opens with flattery that it was very clever and impressive of Amuro to crash such an unwieldy ship into a mobile suit. But Amuro cuts directly to what matters to him, which is, why is Quattro back in the Earth sphere? So he's been away for some time, apparently, and has only recently returned to the Earth sphere. Finding himself, exploring his options. I think when they say the Earth sphere, they mean like the Earth and the moon orbit region, mm, okay. so that includes all of the colonies. And recognizing perhaps Amaro's self-centeredness says, I'm here to laugh at you. <laughs> Isn't that what you want me to say? Isn't what you want for me to say that I'm the only reason I'm here in the Earth sphere is because of you. And Amaro kind of reacting like, no, it's not, but it, it is. It really is. Quattro just plays Amaro like a fiddle throughout this whole conversation. First, he's got the flattery and then the taunting. Pricking Amuro's sense of self-importance. Then he mentions, I want you to become the sort of Amuro who can live up to Katz's expectations. Like that thing that has been obsessing Amuro so powerfully, he just like hammers that nail in. And, and then he mentions Lala. Even before that, you know, Amuro says something like, I didn't choose to end up like this. I'm sure you understand that. <laughs> like you of all people understand how little control we had over where this wound up. But Quattro responds, and yet you don't really want sympathy, which is absolutely true. 
Amro is repelled by sympathy as much as he's repelled by people's expectations. It's like nothing anybody can do will make Amuro feel better because the problem is not how other people are treating him. The problem is how Amuro is treating Amuro. But then Quattro brings up Lala. And as soon as he does this, Amuro is completely off balance. And that's when Quattro hits him with the coup de grace. Don't you think that just shelling up like this is giving the Titans and the Federation what they want? Well, he makes the rather beautiful, sad metaphor of a bird in a cage is a pet, a toy for someone else's enjoyment. Implying that Amaro has permitted himself to become a bird in a cage. And at least for me, this brings up a couple of previous times in Gundam when Shar was linked to birds. This is weird to say, birds don't show up in Gundam all that often, but a couple of times when they did in First Gundam, they were linked to Shar. When the white base returns to space, he describes the white base as being a bird in his backyard, completely at his mercy. And then there's Lala. I was going to say, the other person we see compared to birds very frequently is Lala. And I think it would be fair to say that Lala was a bird in a cage. Yep. And the person for whose enjoyment she was kept in that cage was Shar. We should touch on one last thing about the two of them, which is the contrast Beltorchka makes between warlike and not warlike. It doesn't take Beltorchka more than just a glance at Quattro walking by to be able to tell that he is a warlike person. And he knows it. He stops and listens to her <laughs> and he waits to walk by. He stops precisely when Beltorchka is saying... I was worried that Ayug and Karaba were going to be the sorts of organizations that are unconcerned with killing people because they have the fig leaf of a just cause to hide behind. And it's exactly when she's saying that, that the camera cuts to Quattro walking up and listening in on this conversation. What could that possibly mean? What could the filmmakers be telling us in the language of visual storytelling with this scene? I'm at a loss. As long as we're talking about Quattro, what is Quattro doing with Katz in this episode? At the beginning, when he interrupts the scene between Katz and Camille, he tells Camille to watch out for Katz. He points out that Katz has had mobile suit training. And so the feeling here is like Quattro sort of rolling in like, hey, that kid can do mobile suit stuff. I'm going to claim him. He's going to be one of mine. Camille, you're his new big brother. Watch out for him. I didn't necessarily get that sense. I got more of a, like, pawning off the problem of what to do with cats on Camille. Like, uh, look after this kid. He can maybe make himself useful. He knows some stuff about mobile suits. <laughs> ah, but see, then later when Katz has stolen the Mark II, when Katz has Camille to Camille, it's Quattro who says, open the doors. I did notice that. Katz doesn't give any indication of blowing the doors open. Like, he's not going to force his way out. If they really wanted to, they probably could have induced him to get out of the Mark II right there. But Quattro gives the order to open the doors. Let's see what this new one can do. Yeah, I do, I do think it was likely a test, which Katz failed pretty abysmally. Uh, as first forays in mobile suits ago, it was one of the, maybe the worst one we've seen by anyone who has stolen a mobile suit. <laughs> I would say it's roughly comparable to Sela in the original Gundam. Oh, that's probably on purpose. Right. Since we know it, it parallels the episode where Sela steals the Gundam. Yep. They're both pretty hapless. Quattro also gets the line that sums up so much of what's going on in this episode during this scene, 
Camille asks if, if he thinks that the Titans are going to make another attack, and Quattro says, the new model mobile suit wants to prove its superiority. And if that's not the perfect metaphor for generational conflict, and the generational conflict and fear of being replaced that just runs through every scene in this episode, I don't know what is. We are very pleased to welcome back Dr. Shar. Hello. <laughs> Longtime listeners will have heard Dr. Shar talk about Amuro last season, and she is back this season to talk about Camille. Hi, I'm Dr. Shar of Dr. Charmander Gaming, recently fully real, a real doctor, a clinical psychologist and postdoctoral fellow in neuropsychology. So fancy. <laughs> and Dr. Shar is our very fancy neuropsychology consultant. Mm-hmm. Because it turns out that in the world of Gundam, there are a lot of sad space boys who need a lot of neuropsychological consulting. <laughs> yes. Why is everyone so sad in space? Maybe you can help us answer that very question. It's a hefty task. The podcast has moved beyond the episodes we're going to talk about. We wanted to focus in on some very crucial, very important parts of Camille's life, specifically the beginning of Zeta. So we've asked Dr. Shar to watch some of the first five episodes. So this is episode uh, one, three, and five. And then she has read our summaries of the events of two and four. So this gets Camille from his home on Green Oasis through to the end of the uh, worst grief counseling session in space <laughs> after the death of his father in episode five. If this isn't boring, what is the timeline since I saw things go down? <laughs> For those of you who don't remember, we had Dr. Shar come on when Amuro and company arrived at side six and where he met with his father again. We had Shara, come on to talk about Amuro's situation. Since then, a couple more months passed before the end of the war with one climactic battle at a space fortress where Amuro... Uh, Had more head injuries? Well, what? <laughs> yes, <laughs> actually, <Anne. laughs> actually, kind of. Um, so the, Great. the Gundam and the White Base were both destroyed during that battle. Uh, and one of the things that happened is that the Gundam's head was blown off. Oh, my lord. Amuro, of course, survived intact <laughs> and managed to escape along with his friends and family on the white base. Yep. He had his most psychic moment of all, where he was able to see all of his friends in his mind and guide them all to safety remotely. All right. Yep. And then the show just ends. <laughs> what? The show says, and the war was over, and it ends. All we needed to do is behead the Gundam. So further Gundams decided to put the pilot in the head. Brilliant. No one learned anything. It's true. The pilot is in the head of the Rick Dias, uh, and, and I suppose we could speculate about the meaning of that shift. After the end of the war, and everything I'm about to say is off screen, but seven years have passed. Mm -hmm. There are still some remnants of the old space army, the Xeon forces, kicking around. As a result of that, the... Federation government, the Earth government, has created this organization called the Titans, their secret police, to root out all of those Xeon remnants. But the way the Titans have gone about doing this is through 
jackbooted fascist oppression of all space people. And they're a fundamentally discriminatory organization because you have to be born on Earth to join the Titans. None of the space noids can even join. Yeah, I noticed that. Earth is like one place in all the space, and you want everyone from there? You would think... It ensures their loyalty to Earth. Does it, though? A good question. One we will see borne out in the course of the show. See, because you moved away from, like, the first one being all, like, uh, an overlay of, like, Mm -hmm. World War II, and now we're doing it again, and it's just no one learns in space. (laughs) Well, this one feels maybe more like the Cold War, where the lines are kind of indistinct, and it's more about ideology than nationality. And everyone has a big giant robot, and they want to throw it in different directions. There's also some references to Vietnam. There's some references to... Sort of like the collapsing colonial states. I see. So, Doctor. Yes? (laughs) I'm not used to answering to it yet. There's this boy. We're terribly concerned about him. We think something might be wrong. (laughs) He's been going through some difficult times recently. Mm -hmm. And his behavior has been a little erratic. And I, yeah, I guess so. I don't know if he's always been erratic all his life or if this is just something that happened that came out of avoiding going to practice or something. Well, neither do we. We only met him a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if this is relevant, but he has suffered quite a few head injuries uh, over a relatively short span of time. Uh, I counted five. Five in the episode. Yeah, one per episode, even though they were all, like, heavy in the beginning. Too many head injuries, and also just some baseline about living in space. Could you go into that? You had mentioned to me earlier that when you were watching this, the shifting gravity made you think of something that uh, Russian cosmonauts suffered from, which was... Maybe you should explain it. (laughs) Sure. So if you think about this, and I'm going to put it um, in how I would explain this to myself if I was very tired. So the state of the atmosphere or the state of gravity for people was so variable, like people just throwing off their helmets but floating away and all that. And because he keeps saying that he skips practice all the time and goes to the center of this ship thing... Um, that tells me that he keeps going to places with different levels of gravity. Normally, on here on Earth, we have just the regular distribution of your blood tends to pull at the bottom half of your body. And studies find that people in space or training to go to space, the blood redistributes in the body toward the upper part. And it will regulate itself back to the lower half of the body when they come back to Earth. So if you have this guy that's just jumping all over the place with different levels of gravity, your blood doesn't know what to do. And the same with your your cerebrospinal fluid. All the stuff your brain sits in (laughs) kind of just like going, where do we want to go? That can foster really poor neural connections both in the brain, but also there are neurons in your gut. So like there might be a super focus on that as opposed to developing your brain in this poor, head-beaten 17-year-old boy. So you're suggesting that for people living in space, they would naturally go through some pretty significant neurological changes vis-a-vis people living on Earth? Yeah, so uh, the Russian cosmonauts suffer from something called asthenization. 
so like Russia and China acknowledge that this change happens. America doesn't, but shh, <laughs> they're in space longer. So they see this happen. And that looks like, you know, the regular muscle fatigue. Um, the behavioral changes look like irritability. So if you think about um, the way the brain is organized, uh, we are kind of a left brainy kind of people. We like talking, we like language. And if you're in space, You'll want to be more aware of your spatial presence in space, so your brain activity reorganizes to the right side of your brain. Um, but because of that constant switch with that gravity situation, uh, you would find that the lizard brain takes over your, your base brain that takes care of your sleep, appetite, sexual drive, would be more active because of how often that reorganization is happening. And that can look like someone who's emotionally labile, like super crazy emotional all the time. Um, it can make someone a little bit more erratic, a little more violent. Have memory problems. <laughs> I don't want to say sexually aggressive, but like... Just generally aggressive, yeah. Because we're higher level beings, we'll talk about how we care about our honor and manhood and if you feel like that's threatened like you know going through a lifetime named Camille you might be a little bit more angry okay also being beaten the head by your parents that can't possibly help right no, no because I'm neuro I was focusing on those pieces and I can have the citations for you but at the psychological level it's like when I was watching have you all watched Legion no, no. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure many of our listeners have. Please go ahead. The whole thing with Legion is that people were like, is he possessed by a demon? Does he have schizophrenia or is he just mad with power? And I'm like, why not all of them? <laughs> because because it's true. I was like, a person can have ticks and fleas, not just one or the mm -hmm. other, because all the symptoms look the same. So yes, the lifetime of most likely physical abuse and emotional abuse from both his parents... I would posit that his mom was probably more on the neglecty side type of abuse and his father is, you know, the typical toxic masculinity. Mm, that was our read as well on those. Yeah. And I just thought it was interesting that like that popped out a crazy, aggressive, impulsive child, whereas the roles of Amaro's parents are switched where like the father is uh, the engineer and the mother's kind of got this affair thing mm -hmm. going on. While Camille and Amaro are very different people, other characters in the show keep comparing them to one another. We're clearly mm. meant to be comparing and contrasting the two of them. I can feel the show wanting me to do that. So I did it like passively and it wasn't that interesting. Just like, oh, your parents are switched and they both like to build robots. You had said some things before about the Mark II being yes. a collaboration between the two parents and... and well, yeah, because you told me that like that was their one collaboration together because Camille's mom is a materials engineer and the dad is, well, other than a like a lady lover. <laughs> a philanderer. <laughs> no, I couldn't come to mind. Um, so yeah, because I was interested if Camille had any brothers or sisters and you told me that they made that and I was like, oh... So he had like the perfect older sibling in the Mark II Gundam and that he will never measure up to this thing that they build from their minds. So the only thing he can do is steal it. Yeah. So he did like the in-birth equivalent of killing your twin and then wearing your twin skin. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like, ah, love me. This is the one you love, right? <laughs> uh, so that's what I'm picturing happening when he takes the Gundam. It's just like, you love me now, now that I've become the thing that you care about. But then not only does his dad abandon Camille and clearly not care about Camille, his dad also then abandons the Mark II. He goes to the Argama and he has the opportunity. He could have stolen the Mark II back, but instead he steals a Rick Diaz. And then goes on to say, like, I'll make a better mobile suit. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it was funny because when I was watching episode five, his dad's in his suit, right? So the only defining qualities I have for these characters are their hair color. So I'm like, why is this random guy, like, trying to shoot this other guy and throw him into space? Oh, that's Camille's dad. <laughs> I should have known from the <laughs> personality. <laughs> So I was confused for a little while, but then, yeah, that makes sense. Why does he want the Rick DS? Is it because it looks like the Red Comet or something? It's a cool mobile suit that he hasn't seen before, and he just loves mobile suits so much. Oh, God. So we just have the same templating that he's done with his women onto mobile suits. Great. You've... Great. Great, Dad. Oh, interesting. The idea, like... Oh, this one was good, but this other one is new. Novelty. Yes, so shiny ah. and new. Let me climb up all inside of that and try it out. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's amazing. <laughs> yep. And gross. <laughs> like Franklin. Um, then they fight in space with a whole lot of space jujitsu. I have a question. We know from when Camille gets arrested, he does a lot of extracurricular activities, he does well in school. There are a lot of things about him that seem pretty like well-adjusted for a teenager, except we see him sort of get in this fight with the team captain of the karate club, and then we see him get in this fight at the station. And pointedly lose. Yes. He's lost all his fights. Yes. He fights, I mean, he fights well, but he always takes on bigger, bigger and stronger opponents. Groups of people. <laughs> this awesome self-destructive behavior. Right. Well, that's what I'm sort of wondering about is he then goes on to be very impulsive, you know, running away when his mom comes to get him, stealing the Mark II. Because of the way the story goes, we know that he didn't really think through the consequences of that. <laughs> oh, you don't say. It was a very impulsive action, some of the consequences of which he comes to regret. But I guess I'm wondering how much of that impulsivity and how much of that uh, sort of lack of thinking through the consequences of his actions is likely to be his age and how much of that could be attributed to the trauma, the parental relationship, that sort of thing. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, to speak to the first half of that, uh, about how Camille looks like he's perfectly fine because you keep handing me these children. Uh, <laughs> so what happens is like, if you come from uh, this kind of disruptive or unstable family and it looks like, you know, his parents are like high achievers, right? They're mm -hmm. high achievers in the military. So that's the template you have to try and gain love it's mm. just like, I'm going to go through and prove to you that I'm just as good as what you expect. One of the extracurriculars that he keeps winning awards for is this like miniature mobile suit competition. And it looks like it involves designing and building and then piloting a mobile suit. 
Right, right. So he's doing all that, and I'm going to guess that, you know, it's the very typical, like, I won the award, but no one was in the stands. If you, like, pull the picture back, you're just like, no one's there to support him. Yeah, so he's done everything up to a certain age that he understands to try and gain love, and now he's at the point where we get these kind of obstinate teenagers where it's like, fine, I don't want your love anyway. I'm gonna go explode myself. I see. So like up until a certain point, it's like, I'm going to try to do everything you do. I'm going to be exactly like you so that you'll love me. But when that doesn't work, it flips. And it's like, I'm going to do the opposite of that. Yeah. Before I was doing mobile suit stuff and I wanted to be in the army. And now I'm going to punch a soldier in the face for calling me by the name that you gave me. Pretty much. I'm guessing that a lot of his impulsivity and aggression probably happened around the time that he learned about his father's mistress. Mm. because we try really hard to like give our parents the benefit of the doubt no matter what because we want to love them but if you have this completely edible situation where he's like you don't even want mom makes me not want to want mom and it's like weird this (laughs) weird stuff so then he gets really aggressive because he's like well (laughs) it's not worth it Mm -hmm. you've proven to me that it's not worth it and then it ruins your whole like um, core belief about your family. So why not just destroy yourself because you're the product of that family? There are a bunch of points when Camille and his mother mention the mistress, like directly to the father, just to, to demonstrate that they know. And mm-hmm. not just that they know, but even like know her name, know who she is. And then in the big fight, in the mobile suits, Camille's father, uh, expresses how like lucky he is to be with her and yes. it's it's all like the fighting and the sex are the same thing like <laughs> it was like wow your associations are strange i am the luckiest engineer in the world i get to pilot this brand new mobile suit and i have a beautiful young mistress <laughs> <laughs> sex and violence lizard brain stuff very true like, even though he is this very intelligent very like left brain analytical engineer. Even so, he's fundamentally driven by the urge to physically dominate his wife and child and to like, how can I say this that won't be crude? Uh, I don't know, he's driven by conquest. (laughs) Yeah, and, and to like achieve within the sort of like classical masculine template of like victory in battle and seducing beautiful young women. on promotions within the military he talks about how one of his uh goals is basically to accumulate enough power so that he doesn't really have to answer to anyone so that he can do what he wants within his little fiefdom Mm -hmm. of the like r&d department he's very domineering he's very authoritarian he wants to be in charge of everything and he's kind of a bully not kind of he's absolutely a bully so his dad fights camille in space And they have the prototypical exchange of like, as he's shooting at his son, how dare you point your gun at me? (laughs) Yeah, that was that was quite striking. It's like, that's really special, really, truly an awful person. Even despite all of that, poor Camille can't bring himself to shoot his dad as he's dodging bullets from his own dad. Like, wow, you are you are really broken. You are a broken person with no self-preservation. And that explains half of the random self-destructive impulsive you have going on with you. Because he went after his dad in a partial suit. Mm. 
as long as the missiles were, as long as the gun's working, I'm fine. So I'm like, that's how he always heads into life and probably how he feels all the time. It's just like he never has the tools to deal with anyone. Because the thing his dad built was incomplete. Oh, there you go. I will take up Freud's mantle since you refuse it. Do you think it's possible that part of Camille's opposition to the like fascist military government is him transferring his resentment towards his dad onto this other like authoritarian bullying power structure? Is his dad allied with the Titans? His dad is a member of the Titans. Well, then, yeah. It's just a generalization. <laughs> I hate everyone that is my dad and associated with my dad, therefore making them my dad. So anytime he's going to punch a titan, he's punching his dad. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and Jared is even blonde like Franklin. I know. <laughs> like our other blonde friend. <laughs> is there any danger then that that can transfer to other groups that now that his dad is dead are not associated with his dad, but that are maybe like, like his dad in some ways. Oh, absolutely. I'm waiting for him to beat up Emma. Cause she's still wearing the uniform, right? She's still wearing a Titan uniform. Mm. She's associated with Bass. I'm like, one day you're going to lose your mind and you're going to like yell at Emma real good or like go full, full father brain and assault her. I really hope that doesn't happen. I mean, there's definitely a lot of conflict there, but so far, nothing that bad. So he has instead a weird other blonde fellow on this Argama, right? Yep. yep. The, a the Ayug. The Ayug ship Argama. Uh, yes, I assume by other weird blonde fellow, you mean uh, Lieutenant Quattro. I mean Quattro. Yes, I do. Other weird blonde fellow is a good subtitle for Quattro. <laughs> Yes, this other strange, moderately impulsive blonde fellow. So how do you view Camille's relationship with Quattro? I know you haven't seen very much of it yet. I think that Camille's a little bit in too much shock to um, create relationships. Right now, like someone who's experienced three Criterion A traumas in a week, so a Criterion A trauma would be like witnessing a death or having your life in mortal danger. I would say that happened at least three times. You know, what's that little scientific ball called? It's the one where like the little things in the middle and like it's an outer jar and it's got those little tendrils that shoot out and you put your hand on the- Oh, a Von de Graaff generator. Yeah, that's how he is with his relationships right now. Just like, anybody please, but also don't. Um, so. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Anybody, anybody please, please, but also don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I'm picturing him right now. It's just like, yeah, I don't think there's any formative or helpful relationships right now. And Quattro, you know, is trying to be nice. Like, as opposed to shooting at him, he just space jujitsu's Camille into, like, submission. Mm -hmm. Just like, no, please, come back. We stop fighting. And then for Camille, who's actually experienced something unique called a moral injury, which I will get into in a hot moment, um, has to deal with... Quattro being like, look, that's that's how war is, buddy. And let me tell you about how this other erratic individual that is most certainly not me <laughs> dealt with this. this. <laughs> what was your read on what Quattro is doing there? Oh, my God. So moral injury is a type of thing that goes hand in hand with PTSD. It is a type of 
injury related to your beliefs about the world. Uh, we see this in people who fought in wars where they've had to shoot children. You know that it was ordered to you by the higher-ups that you have to shoot this child coming at you with a backpack, but you have a personal, like, you may have a child at home, and you know that, like, deep down in your core, I've done something wrong. So we see that because if Camille had one ounce of self-control and not gone outside and to see his mom, she might live. And also, like, even aiming your gun at your father, I'm sure that's got some moral injury there. And the treatment for a moral injury is something called adaptive disclosure, which, if done right, can be really helpful. But it was developed out of a quick and easy treatment for the barracks to get you to completely dissociate from your moral beliefs and just go back out there and fight again. Because you're like, it wasn't your fault. It really was. Like, we can go through that really slowly be like, it wasn't your fault. I understand that you feel bad. But, like, they do this in about four weeks in the barracks. Where it's just like, mm -hmm. I get it wasn't your fault, but you have to listen to these people. And then they go back to fighting. And that's what I got from Quattro. It's like, look, there's war. You got to follow the rules of war. And here's how someone did it that was functional with their grief. So you ready to go out there? It's a quick and dirty way of getting somebody to be a functional soldier and overwriting any moral misgivings they have. Pretty much, yeah. What is it like when it's done right? When it's done right, I'm not telling you to go back to war. And if you think about a, a literal physical wound, you don't cover it up with more gauze and let it fester infected, right? You have to let it air out, and the only way that we can let things air out that are emotional is by talking through them. So, when it's done right, it looks like a lot of good PTSD work where we look at the actual details of the story because your memories are fragmented. And we talk about how to um, reassess your faiths in humanity and yourself. And then I don't send you out to war anymore. You go home to your family and you live a functional life. So the part where they tell Camille that he just needs to do what they say, and then he goes and cries alone in his room, you would describe that as an extremely healthy instance of adaptive disclosure? You know what? In my little world, everything stops at episode five. And if they just let him keep crying in the thing and send him back to the green oasis where he can go meet up with Fa, fine, that's fine. But for some reason, I don't see that happening. I can't imagine why your experience with Gundam so far would make you think that that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> the other thing that really struck me from that odd little group therapy conversation is that on the one hand, when Camille tries to express his negative feelings about his parents, other people express shock and dismay, like, oh, you shouldn't <laughs> say bad things about your parents, like... That's not allowed. You'll feel bad about that later. But on the other hand, when he feels grief, they tell him not to do that either. <laughs> yeah, that's all a part of a conditioning. It's like, it's if you push down really hard on something, it's going to come out in a certain way. And so they're like, they're pushing him down. They're like, oh, it's coming out as grief. Don't have grief. Push it down the other way. Oh, it's coming out as hatred. Don't have hatred. It's like, if you push it down really far, they're hoping for just like, murder, murderer. That'll be how you cope. Or possibly just, like, compliance, pliancy. Probably learned helplessness, yes. Just like, you know, if I keep walking around and you keep shooting me in the feet, I'll just lie down and be like, yeah, 
shoot at me. I don't care anymore. Which he's pretty much on that path if he's this self-destructive. That is very interesting. Because you are explaining with more precision and expertise some vibes that we got from the same scene. Aww. <laughs> so it's really nice to, to have some reinforcement on that. Yay! So tell me Quattro is Char. Do you think that Quattro is Char? I think he is. <laughs> I just like how he said that. He's like, let me tell you about this really impulsive person that turned against the whole of the military or something, despite all the losses in his family. That certainly isn't me and was functional and wasn't my family. Do that. You should do that. And then like after previously cutting to like, there were a bunch of times where the, where the captains are like, where's Quacho? Tell him to do the thing. And he's already doing the thing. So I'm like, you're way more impulsive. <laughs> well, that's also because the captain is not terribly competent. <laughs> Why? So you were the age of 25? Probably. <laughs> yeah, yes. Nina's inserting her, uh, her own read on the situation. But yeah, we generally think the captain is not very competent. <laughs> so if Quattro were Char, uh, he would now be 27. Mm. So he's got, a, he's got a fully formed brain. Does he, though? <laughs> One that has merely been shaped by differential gravity and constant traumatic trauma. war. Family loss, grief, complex bereavement that I'm sure never got aired, I'm sure. Presumably a lot of moral injury as well. I don't know. Does, does vengeance deal with familial grief? Oh, wow. Well, I mean... <laughs> Generally not a place I go with people, but okay. <laughs> sure, if I get into the Gundam, then I will get over my parents' grief. Because that sounds like Quattro to me. I was like, I know nothing about you, but you really like Gundaming a lot. Yeah, he does seem to come alive when he's out there flying around, killing people. Yes. In a way that he never does the rest of the time. Well, I don't know. We don't know what he's doing behind those glasses all the time. <laughs> I was like, look at you, wearing sunglasses in a place with no sun. What could that possibly convey about his personality? Nothing at all. <laughs> oh, my lord. So very guarded. So very guarded. To ensure analytical precision, I will tell you, at Quattro, he is a Char. Cool. Well, I'm glad I read that on only one memorable moment of terrible grief canceling. It's only terrible if they weren't doing that on purpose. Are they doing it on purpose? They might be. Intentionally inflicting some uh, moral injury on him so that he can be more useful to them. Why would anyone do that? I would be shocked, shocked to learn that they were doing that. <laughs> I did all the Freudian research I could, and I'm just, I don't have any words about what he would say about having your mom die in your hands while you're wearing your twin's face in space. <laughs> your giant robo hands. Yes. <laughs> Got nothing. Sorry. Tragically, that question was never posed to Freud, as far as I know. <laughs> so perhaps the most baffling and intriguing part of that episode that never gets explained adequately is when Camille is reaching for his mom, he says something like, you always do this to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why do you always do this to me is what he says. And... Well, yeah, that just, again, is back to this the complexity and weirdness of this relationship. Can you speculate about what you think that might be 
in reference to? It's hard. It depends on what he means. I was like, why are you always putting me in danger? Then that could be resentment for why he, his mom doesn't intervene for like potential beatings from his dad. Mm. Or why are you always making me your savior? Because he would want to protect his mother from his abusive father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if we think of it that way, it's more like, why do you always make me be the one to have to protect you from dad and everyone that I associate with dad? Mm. It's my biggest postulation. That was the same read that I had on it. When I heard that, I assumed Camille had some feelings of needing to protect his mom and perhaps a sense that, like, you're supposed to be the one protecting me. Why am I always the one having to protect you? I think that read is correct, but the one other one I thought of is that maybe this is like, why are you always holding me back? Why are you always trying to like stop me from going off on my own and making my own life? It could be. I mean, I guess if we look at the time in episode one where he's like, look at me, I punched a guy in the face. Why'd you have to stop me from punching more people in the face? <laughs> I'm 17 and I'm trying to establish my own life, no matter how totally messed up it is. I think artistically it is done that way to have you have that confusion because that's probably how he feels all the time about these feelings for his family. It's just mm. like, uh, why are you all doing this to me all the time? And like, it could, he's like, but the fact that he even feels that he has to vocalize that is just like, I feel something for you and I don't have words for how awful and great it is. So I think he's trying to articulate a, an emotion that doesn't exist. A word for it doesn't exist, I guess. But you had the question about moving the, the pilot seat from the center. It used to be in the center, right? And it still is on some mobile suits. Are they like the archaic mobile suits or does it? No. So like the Gundam, the Gundam Mark II that Camille pilots, that one has its cockpit in the like belly. Okay. And then the uh, Rick Diaz, the one that Quattro and Camille's dad pilots, that one has the cockpit in the head. So that tells me it's interesting because if you look at the way that history understands the consciousness to reside... You have Egypt where they believe that the source of all consciousness is in the heart. And then through the Renaissance, there was the uh, hypothesis of something called the pineal gland that's in the head. Your pineal gland essentially pilots you. So it, it's just interesting that all these kind of cold and calculated people have pilot seats in the head of their Gundam. And Camille, who I assume is nothing but rage and heart, you know, <laughs> Captain mm -hmm. Planet Heart, um, sitting, sitting there. So it was like... Very, very id. Yes. Hey! <laughs> so, no, it'd be interesting to see where the pilot seats sit for factions. Okay. You couldn't know this because it was after the episodes we watched in First Gundam, but in the final confrontation between Amuro and Shar at the end of First Gundam, Shar is in a new mobile suit, Amuro is in the Gundam. The Gundam, of course, has its cockpit in the chest, in the stomach. Um, <laughs> But the mobile suit that Shar is piloting at the end for their final battle is the first mobile suit that has the cockpit in the head. Hey! <laughs> and at one point during the battle, Shar blows the head off of the Gundam and Amuro destroys the body of Shar's mobile suit. So it's just Shar's head 
fighting Amuro's body. What? Yep. What? Why didn't you tell me this? <laughs> Maybe you should just watch Gundam, Shar. I don't have the time. I barely have enough time to come over here. <laughs> no, so you literally have like your head and heart fighting in space? Yep. Yes. So like Amaro and Shar could be one person just like constantly fighting and having indigestion? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on episode 2.17, Fog Over Hickory, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 16 and plots within plots, secret new type codes, some weird gender stuff, conversations in elevators, the worst father figure, motivation or manipulation, kidnapping, and AVA tricks, how can he think of women at a time like this, and a highly symbolic gift. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Get in the Nemo, Amaro! On any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. Who is it from this week? Me! Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from our host, Nina. Thank you, Nina. The song used in the TNN segment is Recreation by Airtone. The TNN this week featured special guest star Edward Bauer. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. La 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 does not exist past Mars. <laughs> <laughs>
eyebrows give you a, a demon or like a mask warrior face. I was going to say, since I grew the mustache, I could do a much better like Oni face. Yeah. People shouldn't be allowed to play music that loud. Very little of this recording is actually this recording. Oh my god. <laughs> Edward cuts in here. Oh, we were choosing between two names, right? I had one of yours that I liked, and you had one of mine that you liked. Mm -hmm. I think it was Fog Over Hickory. Or um, through the fog and far, far away. away, or through the haze, or mists, or something like through that. Through the mist and far away. I like both. <laughs> so do I. I would flip a coin. Like, okay. do you have a coin? Uh, no, but actually, ha, that's right. right. What about euro? Heads. Do you want euro or um, Athens? Athens. It's uh, Europe. Okay. So it's fog over Hickory. <laughs> 